Welcome to the Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm your host, Carl Truman, Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary, Pastor of Cornerstone OPC Church in Ambler, and opponent of beautiful people everywhere. I'm Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor at Church of the Savior in Wayne, Pennsylvania, desperately wishing I had a line to follow up as good as Carl's was, so I'm not even going to try. I thought you were the pastor of outreach to bald people, Todd, in the Wayne area. I could do that. I I could do that. But see, the thing is, because I still have sufficient hair on my head that people can recognize it, I'm afraid that the bald people would just think I would be being, you know, bragging or that sort of thing. It's it's sort of like being ten pounds overweight. I'm not even going to go uh, to the weight thing, so just forget about that. <laughs> I'd like to talk about weight, actually, Todd. That, that appeals. As a, uh, I want to reflect today on suffering. Now, of course, my friend Todd, being the celebrity pastor mm-hmm. of a mega church, mm-hmm. uh, for Todd, suffering is having to squeeze into those skinny jeans. Absolutely. Twenty years on mm-hmm. and forty pounds mm-hmm. on from when really his doctor would have recommended that right, he last right. get into them. Or, or if somebody takes one of my parking spots. Or somebody takes one of your parking. That's a spots. problem, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, or yes. Um, <laughs> before we start talking about suffering, though, it's perhaps worth making uh, a couple of distinctions in order to, to focus our attention. Suffering can come in various forms. There is what the scholastic philosophers might have called natural evil that causes suffering. Uh, for example, cancer or, or illness. We, of course, as Christians, believe that such things are the result of human sin and of the fall, Mm. but they have an impersonal quality to them, a volcano, an earthquake, a disease. These things cause terrible suffering, but they are a different kind of suffering to that which one might call suffering produced by intentional moral evil. For example, the psychopath who breaks into your house and, and shoots you the person who finds themselves bereaved because a mugger has murdered one of their loved ones. Those kind of evils have a a peculiar malice and pain all of their own. And often Christians, particularly when confronted by terrible things such as the still relatively recent uh, butchering of, of the children at Sandy Hook, school in Connecticut, when Christians are confronted by these things, it can be difficult for us to know how to handle them ourselves for our own faith, and also what to say to unbelieving non-Christian friends mm. when they ask us about these things. They often open up great opportunities for conversation, but we can find it tough to know what to say mm-hmm. in these sort of situations. Right. So joking aside, I want to throw that open for, mm-hmm. for discussion today. Todd, you're a pastor. You must come across this kind of thing with relative frequency in a, in a church as, as massive as yours. Yeah, I think as far as the questions people ask me on a regular basis, either in person or through email, the majority of the questions I deal with in one way or another are related to this subject. Either big picture-wise, somebody will ask, why do these kinds of things happen? Or the even tougher ones when a man is sitting with me, for instance, over a cup of coffee and is grieving over the fact that uh, his wife has abandoned him or a wife grieving over the fact that her husband is an alcoholic and is leaving the family. And they're wanting some sort of an answer as to how God 
allowed this to happen? How has this evil fit in uh, to their experience and their understanding of God? Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Um, is he sovereign? Uh, if he's sovereign even over this, then can he be good? These are the majority of questions I deal with pastorally. So, so let us never think that this is somehow uh, to be locked away in the halls of academia. If, if you're a pastor or an elder of a church, um, you'd better be ready to know how to deal with the issue of suffering, real, ugly pain uh, in people's lives. And we're just now past the, the, the tragedy, the evil uh, that took place in Newtown, Connecticut. Now, I'm currently on a sabbatical from the pulpit, but Carl, I would ask you, um, what, what did you do Sunday at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church? I preached uh, in the morning. I preached uh, an Advent sermon mm-hmm. on Christ as priest, and in the evening I preached on the the opening of John the Baptist's ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in the morning I addressed the the Sandy Hook tragedy head on. Uh, I made the point that we have to put it in context. These things happen somewhere every day, all the time. Mm-hmm. As we speak, there are probably children dying horrible deaths in Syria as the result of the actions of the corrupt government there. People are shot and killed on the streets of Philadelphia every day. This is not to belittle the suffering in Sandy Hook, but it is to say the problem of suffering is a perennial. It doesn't just pop up with a massacre every six months, 12 months, two or three years. The problem of suffering is a daily reality. The problem of evil wreaked by one human being on another human being or human beings, that's something that happens every day in this world. It's a challenge to the Christian uh, every day. My broader point was this, ultimately, life is tragic. There is a tragic quality to all of life, all of us ultimately face the grave. Sigmund Freud said the the purpose of life is death. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which Freud is correct there. Every life will end in death. Every life ends in tragedy. I spoke this summer at a wedding and I made the point that every human wedding begins with joy but ends with tragedy because mm-hmm. one of the partners or maybe both will descend into the grave. Heartbreak is the end of every marriage. The only hope that one can offer people in that context is the hope of the resurrection. Christ himself has passed through death. God himself took flesh, died and rose again, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And even as we speak here and now, even as children are dying around this world at this very moment in time, just as surely, even more surely, Christ is interceding for his people at the right hand of the Father, so that when the cold hand of death grasps us as individuals, we know that we will be carried through to the other side, that tragedy and death do not have the final word. Does that bring comfort in the here and now? Well, yes and no. The tragedy of bereavement, I don't think you ever come to terms with it. My own life has been relatively unmarked by bereavement. But my, my own father died four and a half years ago. Have I got over my father's death? Uh, not really. I've learned to live with his absence. I have not got over his death. I can look to the hope of the resurrection that gives me a sort of forward-looking hope, even if the amount of comfort I have in the here and now is not sufficient to take away the pain. Mm-hmm.
and this is where what we do on the Lord's Day in our corporate gatherings is so consequential to the lives of the people that we're called uh, to pastor. How we lead them in worship, the songs we sing, the way that we pray, and then, of course, what we preach uh, becomes enormously uh, important in their lives because that's where they're going to hear the truth and gain a proper framework for understanding these things. I, I can't help but recommend uh, that folks read uh, a little book by Michael Horton. It, it was originally published under the title, Too Good to Be True, and they reissued it under the title, A Place for Weakness, and he writes just exactly what you said. Uh, so he, he, he helps the reader understand that life takes place in a cruciform way. Um, again, t uh, linking to Luther's understanding of being a theologian of the cross, um, rejecting what Horton calls the glory story in this life. Um, we have resurrection to look forward to, guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. But until then, uh, our lives are marked by the pain of the cross. Um, and so our pain and our suffering is never meaningless, but it's always painful. Uh, the fact that it's not meaningless doesn't take away the fact that, uh, that that it's that it's still very painful and it can mitigate some of the pain to a certain extent but really what do you say to a parent who's lost their child to a shooter in an elementary school you don't immediately walk up to them and say well you have to understand because of the cross I can mitigate this pain a little bit um, and that's why I say I, th I think what happens then on Sunday mornings in our corporate gatherings becomes of ultimate importance because if we do if you like theodicy from the pulpit, if, if we preach about who God is and what he is like and the place of suffering and the hope of the, the resurrection, then we don't necessarily have to do all of that in the hospital room um, or in the funeral. Those places are for embraces and tears and oftentimes silence. And hopefully you don't then have to wait to do all of that instruction in the hospital room because you've done it faithfully in the pulpit. Yeah, I think the cultivation of the tragic nature of life in the fallen world is is absolutely critical. And of course, it's something that's so countercultural in America, and frankly, so countercultural to this young, restless, and reformed revival that's out sure. there. Uh, churches full of 20, 30-something hipsters are not the same as churches that have people in their 60s and 70s and 80s. Right. I was talking with the session clerk at my church uh, some time back when, when we were appointing him a session clerk. And he said, you know, I'm not persuaded that this is a good use of my remaining time. Mm -hmm. You know, Dick Gaffin is a man in his mid-70s. He's aware of the fragility of mm. human life at that age. He understands that things are going to come to an end, that his days really are numbered. All of our days are numbered. It's a whole lot easier to number them when you're in your 70s sure. than it is when you're in your 20s, 30s, or even 40s. And one of the things that concerns me about the Young, Restless, and Reform movement is I don't see this tragic aspect. I see preachers who take their cues from stand-up comedians sure. because for them, preaching is, it's all about communication. Right. Uh, for me, preaching is all about bringing out the tragedy of life mm -hmm. and pointing people to Christ as the answer to that tragedy, not as a way of stepping aside from the tragedy and pretending it isn't happening, but seeing this is a man whose life was in many ways rich with tragedy and suffering, yet he came through it, through the resurrection. 
when you look at the gospel narratives, when you look at Christ in the garden, I said to uh, the congregation last night, uh, I mentioned Gethsemane, you know, Christ weeps in the garden of Gethsemane. Mm. He, he sweats, sweat comes out like blood. Is this a play act? Is he just going through the motions as some kind of pretendy thing to teach a lesson? Or is the real tragic existential struggle going on there? Well, the answer, of course, is it's this tragic existential struggle mm -hmm. as he sees the weight of the darkness of human existence in this fallen world bearing down upon him. Right. There is real pain there. We have to tread so carefully when we talk about you know, God's suffering, if you like. Right. I don't want to deviate from classical orthodoxy on that. But there is a real sense in which the incarnation means something significant. Hebrews says it gives us a high priest who is not unable right. to sympathize with us right. in our weakness. Well, what is our weakness? Part of that is living in this tragic world. Mm -hmm. We don't approach a God in the raw, a, a naked, brute force God, if you like. Mm -hmm. We come to God through the incarnate mediator right. who has himself embodied the tragedy of the human dilemma right. in his incarnate life on earth. And I just don't get that from the, the hip-hop songs, the yeah. big bands, the trendy light shows, the stand-up comics who are setting the trend in contemporary mm -hmm. evangelicalism. Yeah, and, and, in, and in much, I would say, most of contemporary evangelicalism, uh, our worship is very much one note emotionally. And, and it's almost as if you have a responsibility to come in very, very cheerfully because the music is very, very cheerful. They strike up the band with the guitar chords and uh, a particular beat, and the, the command is, now be happy, mm. um, in, in what I think to be the most one-dimensional sense of that word. Be happy, be uh, ready to clap. And we have not, at least my experience, is that we have not given our people the language of lament um, in our corporate gatherings. Um, and, and I understand why. Consumers don't want that. Consumers want to come and be made to feel good about themselves and good about the world and good about their surroundings. Well, that is the nature of consumption. Part Absolutely. of it, of course, is you know, Blaise Pascal made this point in the 17th century. We create things like consumerism, you know, massive bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. We create things to distract us from reflection upon mortality. Pascal asks that great question, why does a king have a jester? A king has everything. Shouldn't it be sufficient for a king to contemplate his own greatness? Well, Pascal makes the point, no, because if he sits on his own and contemplates his greatness, he will remember that he is on this earth for but a short time, mm -hmm. and after that, the judgment. Right. We create distractions, entertainment. Entertainment's fine if it, if it alleviates if you're working on a factory line, you're sweeping the floors of a factory, I can understand why of a weekend you might want to spend an hour or two sure. watching a movie, you know, having a drink with friends, doing something that punctuates the, the tedium of everyday life. But in America, we have made entertainment the center of life. It's not right. that which alleviates the tedium of life, it's become the center right. of life, and the church has aped it. And what we have at the moment is a very problematic situation. In the past, it was always them out there. It was the prosperity gospel teachers, it was the Pentecostals, it was 
the the oneness people. It was right. them out there who had the entertainment stuff. Suddenly, the last ten years, the entertainment guys have got Reformed theology. Absolutely. It's right in here now. Mm -hmm. And Reformed theology in its true form understands the tragedy of the human condition. Right. And that must be reflected in Reformed liturgical practice. Yeah. The hymns, the songs, the psalms we sing. Not a point about contemporary versus traditional worship. I'm talking content here. You can express lament in a contemporary idiom, I'm sure. But it's never done. Right. It's very rarely done. Why is that? It's of no interest. Yeah. And then when you have a tragedy like it's Sandy Hook, what do you say to those people? Right. If you're the pastor of a big band megachurch in uh, Newtown, Connecticut that weekend, would you have changed your music that Sunday? Right. Probably you would have done. And if you had done, then you've got to ask why. Right. Because all you've seen here in a blunt form is reality as it's spread over the whole globe and has been for thousands of years. So why make this an exceptional circumstance to suddenly introduce right. lament? People are dying in every tragic day. circumstances every day. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's one of my questions is that, that I would ask any pastor is what songs uh, did you sing on Sunday? after this or the Sunday after 9-11 I, it was probably not shine Jesus shine probably not probably not and and do your congregants do the people whose souls you're charged to care for do they have a vocabulary that embraces the tragic do they have a spiritual vocabulary that embraces the tragic do do, do you as corporate worshipers have um, songs that you know how to sing that express these deep um uh, issues of loss and pain, cries for justice. When was the last time I sang a song? Uh, I, I heard Terry Johnson down in Savannah, Georgia, uh, one time uh, talk about the, the, the Sunday after 9-11. And uh, he was having a conversation with another Reformed pastor, uh, Terry Johnson, of course, being a great champion of almost exclusive psalmody, uh, explained to this pastor how they had a wealth of songs to draw from on the Sunday after 9-11 mm. from the Psalms themselves, songs of lament, mm. psalms of, of cries for justice mm. to which this uh, friend uh, pastor of his, they searched their whole repertoire and mm. had no appropriate songs no. to sing. But I think that that's, I think that that's what is normal. Um, I grew up, I never remember hearing a song uh, that really, really um, gave expression to the suffering that we experience, the, the suffering that untold millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ experience every day, um, or much less even cries for justice, because that's not nice, I suppose. Mm. Maybe that's a, a, good, a good challenge to, to give to our listeners as we, as we wind up here. You know, the church is supposed to connect with culture. I get tired of talking about you know, how the church is meant to connect with culture, mm. etc. The culture is dying. Right. We have a culture of death. It is all coming to an end. To what extent does your church, in a liturgy, in preaching, in the way you relate to each other, to what extent does your church reflect and challenge and provide an answer to that culture of death? Thanks very much for listening on perhaps an unusually serious podcast today, but the, the subject we've been dealing with and the context we're dealing with with it in is a is somewhat serious and somber one but this has been an episode of the mortification of spin i'm your host uh, carl truman please visit our website and uh, also uh, look at the 
related websites, Reformation 21, Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists in order to speak just these kind of messages to the culture of the day. We want to be countercultural in an appropriate way. And I'm Todd Pruitt. We do very much appreciate your time.